Welcome to episode 173 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. Happy off-season, officially. There's like no tennis. Well, IPTL, I'm not going to count at all. Yeah, there's no non-exhibition tennis going on right now. Correct, yeah. No, and a happy off-season to you as well. It's been, I think, well-earned. It's short. I mean, I'm (laughs) so short. (laughs) My flight to Down Under is later this month, later in December. So it's kind of a, a blur, but a welcome short blur that I'm hoping to make the most of. Um, yeah, it feels it feels shorter. I feel like this is. I feel like Davis Cup final was later this year than other years, maybe because of Olympics. Does that make any sense? No, no it's, this, it's 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 usually the same. I think it usually does fall during that like Thanksgiving ish weekend. weekend, right, yeah. or whatever. But it does seem shorter this year, the the off season, and maybe it's just because 2016 you know, whether on the court or off the court, tennis related or non-tennis related, felt like it like had a ton of things thrown in there. So it feels like we need more time to kind of um, decompress. Recover. <laughs> for, recover from anything. But yeah, I'm the same as you. I, I booked last week, sat down and like spent hours sitting down to like book all of my stuff for Australia and to kind of turn the page a little bit on 2016 and look into 2017 and start scheduling and planning and figuring out what the first like three or four months of next year look like. So, um, yeah, so I, I've, I've done that. I luckily the WTA season ended a little bit earlier. So I've had a few extra weeks, I guess, to, to kind of decompress and, and let things go. So I'm, 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 I'm officially in pre 2017 mode. As am I, we'll do it. We'll do a full 2016 recap. We'll do our, you know, annual remember when show maybe next week or sometime soon. But in this week's show, we're going to dive into a bunch of the Kickstarter questions we've already gotten from our Kickstarter backing, which started nearly a year ago. It's been a, almost a year. And we are we have a bunch of these we'll get to in the future as well. But we wanted to get sort of a stockpile of them going. As for those of you who weren't around for our Kickstarter campaign or don't remember, uh, one of our rewards was having people give us essentially a question or a prompt for a segment of the show. So we're just going to do a bunch of answer a handful of those half dozen or so here and discuss them and hopefully, and it'll be a a variety of topics. Some of which we've touched on before, some of which we haven't. Uh, Yeah. It'll be a, a a smorgasbord of listener steered content, which I'm very excited for. Yes. You ready to, uh, you ready to opine Courtney? Let's go for it. Let's, let's, let's finally give these lovely Kickstarter uh, supporters the things that they deserve because it's all it's all happening folks december is <laughs> a really big let's try and get as much of the kickstarter stuff done as possible month for both both of ben, uh, ben and i so if my, you... my postcard stack is next to the computer yep as is mine i'm looking at it as well so we're, we're still piling through those so please be patient but uh but yeah that that's going to be one of the big things that we're doing so right now for this episode all kickstarter all the time i think and we, I think people have asked us if we're doing another Kickstarter this year. No. Right. Not that we wouldn't like to, and we, not that we, our appreciate the support was great, but I feel like it's a very basic thing that you should finish the rewards from the previous Kickstarter <laughs> before st- even thinking about starting another one. Yeah. So let's get to com- uh, accomplishing some of that. And by the way, if you're someone who has a question as one of your rewards and you haven't uh, sent us a question yet, please do. 
uh, no challenges remaining at gmail.com is our email and just tag in the in the subject line if you can it's a kickstarter question and we'll make sure it's on the top of the pile um so this is a question from matthew niger or niger i don't know how you want to how anglicized his pronunciation is of that verb which is french for to snow so it's seasonal um <laughs> it's uh he asks have the changes to tennis over the last 15 years i.e more seeds at grand slams preferential scheduling uh best of three masters finals instead of best of five have those changes helped pa- quote-unquote pad the stats of the top players by historical standards so i think that's a obviously interesting question and i guess it just goes to sort of the apples and oranges of era comparison which is always a a dangerous sort of game i guess yeah no i mean it it becomes a lot more difficult to really start to stack up uh you know uh player cvs against players in the past uh, these days i think i think that one of the bigger things that i feel like has had an impact not necessarily i don't know if i would go so far as to say it is it that it pads stats but i've been personally very curious about and very interested in kind of the shift or pivot away from you know players top players greats right all-time greats being players who did well week in week out both at slams and on the tour level compared to the pip and and you were expected to win on the tour level like that was a, a reason that people you know uh respected you more is because you won like everything right to now where i think we can all agree and i think that it's it's pretty um apparent that that the shift in emphasis now is really on slams and that therefore you know when you talk to some of the 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 players from the past like chris chris everett or uh, martina navratilova or some of you know those players that time billy jean you know, there is kind of this whole like, yeah, slams were happening. But like, if I knew then that like slams were going to be what everybody measured my entire legacy on, I would have like thought of things a little bit different than they do now. So how do you compare, right? Like, um, you know, a Serena, who obviously I think is going to break the slam record. Um, but how do you compare that with like a Navratilova or an Everett who like destroy her when it comes to tour level titles? You know what I mean? And like, what matters? I don't know. And and so it's not so much about padding of stats. It's just like more like, well, depending on how you see it, whether you find it frustrating or fun that you can continue to have these like cross era debates because there isn't an apples to apples comparison. Yeah, I'd be curious. And I've wanted to write this story for a while and pro- hopefully still will. Maybe with Serena being tied with uh, Steffi Graf right now. And maybe if she wins one more, she'll be looking to tie Margaret Court, which answer which brings up a whole different issue <laughs> yeah. open era and things i mean it's i think i was and i'm curious just when it started being that slams were the currency yeah of the sport and i i want to say if i had to guess i want to say it's when sampras probably was going to break rod laver's record that's the first time i can remember it coming up like i don't remember there being talk about and obviously i wasn't paying as much attention back then in the 90s when this was happening about like steffi graf passing navratilova and ever at 18 or something like that um i think that it was with sampras passing labor or rosewall who's at 12 i think one of the whoever it was see i mean it's been a while then sampras did that and then those guys get less important and then federer passes sampras um and then career slams for this thing which everybody's racking up all of a sudden now you know we've had a generation where we have what six players with career slams now with the top big four, or not, no, that's not quite, not quite as many as that. Well, if you count Agassi in this generation, then 
I guess you could, and then Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Sharapova, and Serena. So that's like, those aren't things that people used to accomplish with any regularity because they didn't play all the slams. Right. And that's now what the currency is. And it just makes it tough when people, especially when you talk about Australia is the most asteriskable one of all. Lots of times when players weren't traveling down to play the Australian Open, but whether it was in December or January. And so those, which means A, that hurt their slam count. And also B, the people who do win that to pad their slam count, especially Australians like Margaret Court, uh, it, that was during uh, before the open era as well. It's just a lot of a lot of asterisks as for as far so that's just sort of goes to the more stat padding and just the problems with using that as apples to apples comparisons when they're really not, even though it might look like a unified metric. Uh, in terms of the changes, I don't know that any of those necessarily have. I, I think that best of three well best of three masters finals, I think make it easier to pull off a double. In those cases, and that's really the only place where that would have an impact. Like if you want right. to do the Madrid Rome double or the Indian Wells Miami double or uh, whatever else there might be. I think back then it was Rome Hamburg um, earlier in the men's side when they were best of five finals. Maybe that helps with that, although it's probably not that big a deal. Um, seeds at Grand Slams, I don't know if that makes it harder to win a Grand Slam or not. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, too, and again, this is a very hard thing to kind of like extrapolate out and separate in terms of cause and effect. But at the end of the day, right, theoretically, a best of three Masters series is should be leading to more upsets, should be leading to more haphazard results than the, the classic best of five. And at the end of the day, though, you have this best of three transition happening. And you also have one of the like the, the greatest era of men's tennis, where the big four guys are winning everything anyway regardless of whether it was back in the day best of five and to you know with i mean obviously that was an era right before you know uh novak and andy kind of joined the big four it was more of a, a roger thing but um it, i don't so therefore i don't think that it really that specifically i don't think it really pads stats right like you're i don't think that i'm looking at somebody and saying like oh you have way more masters than you should if this was still best of five, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I, I like I said, just I think it's in those couple cases where people would skip one. Like I know pretty frequently like the Rome champion would pull out of Hamburg the next week. And that's part of why Hamburg went away. Why Hamburg yeah. struggled with their fields uh, when it used to be the final clay court masters before um, before Madrid was a clay court masters event. Uh, before the tour shifted, I think, in 09. So that was, I mean, that might have added a couple Masters titles here or there. I mean, if you want to call that padding make, or a more favorable schedule, okay, um, that's that's fine. I, I just don't know that it makes a huge, huge impact. And on the on the 16 seeds thing, I'm, I'm curious um, how, I guess, how you feel about that in general. I know that's one of the things that, like, some people have been in the sport longer than us talk about as a way to make shakeup slams and make them more exciting. I personally like having 32 seeds. I would happily have 128 seeds if it was an option. <laughs> I, just, I just think that in a sport where ranking points and prize money are based, it's not winner take all these tournaments. You get rewarded based on incremental progress. And I feel like there should be as much uh, infrastructure and effort there to make equal steps as possible to try not to make the draw be so luck dependent because you could easily back in the, uh, olden days get to a Grand Slam quarterfinal much more easily without facing a single seed. You know, where the draw could only a couple people would have to lose and draws would get way open. You'd have a lot more random people making runs that maybe were playing great and maybe weren't and might have just lucked into a better draw. And you'd also get situations where you'd have, you know, a top 10 player facing somebody ranked 19th or 20th first round, which would be, I guess, a, a fun match, but would be 
unfair to both those guys, I think, when there's so much money and points and stuff at stake at these four Grand Slams. Yeah, so. and I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with the 32 seeds. I think that, yeah, um, on one hand, you do need to reward people for, for earning, you know, those privileges at Slams, being a top you know, eight seed, being a top 16 seed, being a top 32 seed, it, that should matter. And that should have some impact on things. Secondly, I think that we do have to stop and think, you know, these tennis is still kind of in a lot of ways in its infancy as a sport. Um, it, it's learned how to walk, you know, from crawling to, to, to walking, which I think is the transition into the open era. But I do think that there, there do need to be and needs to be an, an understanding and a focus on the idea that it is a a business, it is a a and a commodity or a product that needs to be sold to fans. In that way, you know, you do need to kind of you know create these tournaments to where it does optimize the chances of you know the last four days of your tournament being full of the best players in the world going up against each other like that's going to be at the end of the day what what garners the most interest what drives sponsorship what drives drives viewership you know business and, and that side of things so you know i'm i'm totally fine with kind of protecting the draw as much as you can <laughs> um with respect to, to to seedings um and and again and, and giving the top players the players who have worked hard throughout the year um to keep their ranking in a certain level to to give them a reward once they get to the biggest ones and that's how you help you know, these players fund, you know, their, their careers, um, you know, to be a top 32 seed and effectively be able to, to get into the third round of a major and to collect that prize money, theoretically, that's massive. And, and that should be the reward of doing everything that you could on a week in week out basis during the year of keeping yourself in that top 32. No, I think that's right. And I think that what, you, what a couple of different points, what you said earlier, which I don't know if I directly responded to, we said earlier about tour titles as a metric, just general tour titles is totally right. And I don't know if it, I, I mean, some of the numbers that ever, ever and Navratilova had are insanely high. They're insane. So, I mean, to the point of almost being laughable when you look at them, like they're way up in the triple digits and, I don't think Serena's nowhere near 100, or not that close to 100. I think she's like 81, something like that. Yeah, she's not within shadow. No, distance. so so it's just the numbers there are not comparable. So it just sort of makes it clear that you're working with two different uh, clocks telling different sort of times. And in terms of preferential scheduling, I don't think it's so much right now that it prevents people, that it acts as a complete parachute. I mean, if somebody starts syncing up the joint, they still crash and burn. Like, look at... I mean, like Jeannie Bouchard, maybe it's the most recent example of somebody who got into the top eight and was getting buys and everything. But once she stopped winning, you know, her ranking took a hit pretty quickly. And you still have to keep uh, keep your, you know, treading water or you're going to, even if you start off at a higher point, you know, you're, you can sink pretty quickly, even with the sort of padding you get from the draw. So I think, yeah. I think that shows, it's almost, yeah, that it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, it's almost as if like seeding, um, you know, earning top seeds at not just at the slams, but at tournaments as well. It's the one kind of safety net, almost like not welfare system, because obviously it's benefiting the tops. But like, it's this kind of weird safety net that exists within tennis that doesn't uh, that otherwise 
if it doesn't exist, would just reemphasize how cruel of a sport this is. This is like, you know, an eat what you kill type of sport. If you don't win, you don't get paid. Um, You know, it's very, very simple, right? We talk about this all the time. It's not like any other team sport where you get benched, like boohoo, you got benched, but you still get paid, like whether you played or you didn't, like it doesn't have any impact. Whereas with tennis, you get an injury and you're, you're kind of screwed for the next four weeks. Um, and so with the seedings and trying to offer these little protections to the top players, it is kind of a, a nice little safety net to kind of, you know, even with like you, you're talking about Jeannie and a situation where, look, she earned her seeds, you know, with with her, the ranking that was there. She did go through a bit of a slump and obviously that slump kept continuing so that she fell out of being, you know, a seed at tournaments. But at least for a few months there, she had kind of this this perish, this 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 safety net beneath her. Um, and you can see that with with quite a few of the players as well, like a Kvitova as well. So you know that I, I'm not I'm not against that. I think that that's I don't know. I just, I just think this sport beats up on you on so many levels that like if there's just a I don't know uh, one way to make life just a little bit easier for you, I'm okay with. I'm it. okay with that too. Uh, next question comes from Jeff Crady, who asks, uh, "Can you talk about if there is a presence of quote unquote broke culture?" on the men's tour these days among the younger guys. Uh, when you look at, at Rafa, Roger, Andy, etc., and compare them to like Sock, Query, Kyrgios, etc., they seem so different in maturity. Is it just maturity difference in their ages and points in their life, or is their quote-unquote broness a cultural shift? Anything along those lines would be interesting. I mean, like, why are all the American men going fishing after tournament losses? I think there was a big <laughs> trend of like fishing pictures, uh, I, I kind of died down. I don't know if they got tired of fishing. Um, that's a sidebar by me. Uh, the twenty somethings <laughs> just really remind me of the high school kids I coach. That is neither good or bad. It's just an observation. Uh, yeah, I, I think there is definitely a generational shift for sure. I, I think that's one of the things that this is me answering now. Um, I think that's definitely one of the things that I look at as sort of an explainer when you talk about what people on the ATP, you know, derisive people <laughs> refer to as generation suck. You know, this, oh, Jesus. I, mean, I didn't know you, that. You don't Sorry. know that term? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Well, it's a term I've heard from, it's, you know, it's a trolley term, obviously. But when people obviously. are talking about this demographic, this, this cohort that just never materialized, um, people younger than Djokovic, essentially, or if you want to even go, if you want to throw Chilich and Del Potro in there, who are both 88 birthdays, um, people younger than them. I mean, there's been no master's titles, no slams by this group. And they're getting, they're in their mid, you know, coming up on mid late twenties right now. They're 25, 26. And they haven't done anything. Um, and obviously the ones at the top are, you know, I don't think people are knocking in particular Misha Corey or Ronich, but this whole group, there's never been a lack of success at that age before. And one of the, and one of the reasons people look at is just that something about whether you want to call it broness or chillness or millennialness or, uh, you know, being on technology, all these sorts of things uh, I think can be you know, looked at. I mean, Courtney, you probably remember that quote from Venus Williams, right? about the kids these days with their phones <laughs> kids these days with their phones yeah, yeah oh, I, mean, I, I guess what, what 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 do you what do you think about that about uh i guess if you want to talk about bro culture and if it is if there is just a if it, if, if it is a different generation on tour now that you can see a line whether you want to go with any names uh, he named or you know I think that it's very tempting to say that, like, oh, there's a bigger sense of bro culture these days, um, simply because, re reminder, we are we also have an incredible amount of access to 
this younger generation of player. They are on Twitter. They are on Instagram. They let you know everything that's going on in their lives 24-7. And, you know, a decade ago, that was not the case. You know, we didn't have that from Novak or Roger or Rafa or Andy and a lot of those players, you know, Marat, uh, Roddick, you know, all of these players who back in the day, you know, were playing. We didn't have that access. So we're seeing something that we can't really necessarily say it didn't exist before, but we definitely know that exists now, you know, because we because we, we can see it. I think that too. So that's one point that I will make. Secondly, I think that, you know, and this is not, this is not to say that it's not there. I'm just like kind of beating back a little bit. I think that, again, we're talking cultural issues. I mean, what does what does bro culture look like in Spain? I don't know. <laughs> What does bro culture look like in Switzerland? I don't know. What does bro culture look like in Britain? I have somewhat of an idea because yeah. we spend time in Britain, like, you know, lad culture or whatever. Um, and what does bro culture look like in Serbia? I don't know. Like, when you say that, you know, Rafa, Roger, Andy, Novak, like, oh, they didn't seem to be part of bro culture when they were young. It's like, well, how do we know? You know what I mean? Like, they're not American. Um, and again, we didn't have access to them in the way that we didn't have like a mirror into, or a window into their lives the way that we have with these youngsters. So it's a little bit different. Um, so, you know, I'm not entirely sure I buy into that. I mean, I think back in the day, if I were to look back, you know, when you had like, you know, Roddick dating Mandy Moore and Andre Agassi and Brooke Shields. And I don't know, like the, it, those, the Americans back then seemed bro -y. Yeah, no, there was like in a different way. There lots of like, like movie star entanglements we don't get now because sadly we don't have any A-list American <laughs> men tennis players right now, really. Um, I guess, I guess, you know, the Bryans are just platonic friends with Kaylee Cuoco and that's about as close as it gets. Um, oh, Ryan Sweeting, you yeah, try. Oh, oh. Uh, um but yeah no i think that it, it is true and i i'm willing to bet that the guys like federer are very happy that they weren't on social media and all these other things yeah. tracking their every move when they were in their sort of raw developmental years and they were allowed the space to make mistakes um and that's something that they not that these guys aren't i mean some of the players are pretty some of the players are definitely much more reserved about social media uh, someone like a team is not especially an an especially exuberant sharer of personal life on social media. Definitely Zverev isn't. I think Zverev still isn't on Twitter. Um, and a couple of the other players too are just sort of more reluctant adopters of it, um, which I would probably encourage if I was in an entourage as much as I enjoy when players are, you know, effervescent and wonderful on, on social media. I'm also respect when they have no profile whatsoever. Um, I think it's very... <laughs> it's weirdly refreshing. It is. And I think it's funny. The two players who I think have no social media footprint at all that I can think of are, for good reasons, Ernie, Ernie Ernest Gulbis, and Bernard Tomic. <laughs> Neither of them have any social media accounts. And I think that we would see... And they they happen to be two of the most fascinating yeah. players. Why? Because we don't know anything about that. mystery, yeah. Like, there is kind of a little bit of that about this whole, like, now that... And, and there's two things about social media. One is that, obviously, it offers a little bit too much information. But secondly, it's also just performance. Like, none of it's honest. Like, think of... I'm sorry. Like, nobody's social media these days is honest. Mine's not. Like, every the things that I tweet about are things I choose to tweet about. That's not 100% of what my life is. And so, like... Is it on, you know what I mean? Like nothing's, it's what you want people to know about you or whatever. So like, that's the only thing about social media that's so weird these days with the players. It's like part of it is like sometimes I sit down to sit with the player and I feel stupid being like, so what did you do last week? When I absolutely know what they did last week because they posted it all over social media. Like, you know, like, 
Um, and then at the same time, I don't know. I just feel like so much of it is just performance that it's not actually, um, you know, which is why, I, I mean, I take great pleasure and, um, you know, pride and appreciate the challenge of like, of constantly actually face to face talking to these players. Cause that's like a, the, the, the sense that I get from them in those conversations is so different than what I would get if all I did was follow them on social media. But, and, and it's true. Yeah. That, that's totally true. Not to get all, you know, Jerry Springer, you know, you don't know me. You don't know me about the, about, you know, what these <laughs> players are like, it's true that player, the fans certainly can get more one dimensional impressions of the players through just following them on social media, even if it is more access and more sort of an intimate look than you might have gotten uh, in more, you know, uh, old school days when it was just everything going through a newspaper lens or newspaper reporter's eye. There is some more access there, but it's also, like you said, it's very true. That it's not a full picture. Um, it's a self-curated thing, uh, which you can read into and learn what people think about themselves and learn that, you know, certain players. Oh, like for sure. Kyrgios, obviously, it's a very, even if he acts like he doesn't care, it's a very meticulous sort of uh tone he wants to put on social media someone like i mean i don't know like we talked about on the show i think years ago like yarmila gaitasova has like a, a very a very oh, certain sort of flavor of her twitter um yeah and other other you definitely yeah. learn stuff about oh, sure. like just like anything else right like i mean even when somebody is performing like or you know like they're they're that's still something they're intentionally putting out there so somebody's intentionally putting something out there and you're like whoa that's like really well, they're intentionally putting it out there, so you can read into yeah. that how you choose to. And um, but it's never ever a hundred percent full picture of a person. And sometimes I think that sometimes I see comments from fans that are very much like it's like, oh, you really take all that stuff literally, and that that is like the only world, yeah, you know, of that player. And it's like, no, that's like literally ten percent of me, your life, me, like ninety percent of it. Is bite definitely. back into Jeff's question more directly, though. Do you think that sure. these that this generation has less maturity? A, than the previous ones did? Is that something you can quantify? And B, is that something that's, whether or not you think it's because of technology, something that has held them back? I think it's a spectrum, obviously, because like Dominic Team is in this generation. He is a... Right, machine. yeah, that's why I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to, 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 to paint broadly on it. I mean, I think that, I think that you're always just going to have, again, I, you know, the more I think about it, look, I think that if you were to go back generation to generation to generation, or even just like five year increments, right back and back through tennis, you could come up with a handful of three to five names of young players who were douchebags. <laughs> Completely. You could. And anyway, I mean, whether or not, yeah, whether or not they were famous or not famous or, you know, whatever, but you could, you can easily come up with three to five names. You're like, oh man, that person sucks, you know? And that doesn't change over time. I think that that's just, I mean, at the end of the day, especially, I mean, with Jeff's question, it's specifically about bros and about about male, you know, athlete culture. They're jocks. Yeah. At the end of the day, they are male athletes. And that is pretty universal. That prototype of a person is, is a pretty standard thing. Like, I mean, I could go in, into a whole offshoot about why I think that female athletes are so much more interesting, but because they are female athletes, there's a completely different, like, set of, I don't know, challenges and things that they're working up against sure. and for, as opposed to the guys. And so, I mean, what, I mean, aren't all jocks that way? I mean, at the end of the day, you're, you're a young 20 something who's making 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars playing a sport for a living. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to have a real, real job. It's pretty fun. And it's really easy to kind of be a jerk sometimes about it, you know, and that's pretty standard when it comes to male athletes. I don't think that's specific to tennis. I don't think that's, I mean, I think that it's, if anything, it's lesser in tennis than you see in other major sports. Um, but that's kind of par for the course in a lot of ways. So again, I think it's just the fact that like we see this as a change or a shift only because we now have a window into it. Whereas in the past we didn't have as much of a window. And so, you know, like when, when, when Andre, cause I've heard these stories from like veteran tennis writers like Andre or Courier, um, specifically the two names, uh, McEnroe, uh, Connors who like would give press conferences and were absolute a-holes you know but instead of like back in the 70s and 80s being able to screen crap screen grab a transcript and post it onto Twitter for all tennis fans to know that quote is filtered through uh you know a sports writer and you know you get it kind of watered yeah. down a few weeks later and, even then, and it doesn't it's make it not... on message boards and doesn't sort of live yeah. online forever you know, in the right. same accessible way. Yeah, no, it's totally right. I remember just, I was searching, actually, I think it was for the Ducky article. I was like looking past around ASAP transcripts of uh, of past uh, press conference people mentioned like hearing the ball or something like that. And I stumbled across that one with like Natasha Zvereva, Gigi Fernandez yeah. getting all crabby and something. And that, you know, we never heard of that about that. And I don't think it would have made a big impact at the time just because it was in a pre-internet era pretty much. And it's also like a pre 24 hour news cycle yeah. era, even if you distill things down to tennis and just the sport, we still live in like a quote unquote 24 hour news cycle where like every little freaking thing is like a big old deal because we're all kind of charged with making it a big deal. You know what I mean? And this kind of, yeah. yeah. And it goes back to the the first question about stats and, and padding of stats and things like that. Like everything's a freaking milestone these days, right? Like now with like the at like the focus on like statistics and analytics and not necessarily in the right way, but just generally people just like love numbers now. And you combine that with like a 24 hour news cycle and it's like every single thing. It's like something happens that's supposed to be near historic every other day. And it's so exhausting, honestly, because there's there's some things that are just not. From the way, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. your exasperation, tennis, as we've talked about. Well, no, we haven't done too much on the show, but as people should know, tennis is so far behind other sports. When it comes to record keeping and data and stats and things like that, especially on the official levels and having the open databases and things like that, there would be so much more stuff. If tennis had its act together on those things, you'd be inundated with milestones on things. Like Madison Keys just hit her thousandth career ace. How do you feel about that, Madison? Like, does that matter? What does that even mean? I don't know. She hit a bunch of aces. We know that. Around right, exactly. The, the, I don't know. But we, that's the whole yeah. thing about stats, right? It's like, okay, stats are cool, but stats have to tell you something that you did not know before. And if it only says the exact same thing, it's just a round number that just emphasizes a thing you already knew, then you just wasted your time looking up a stat, right? Like, so, but yeah, sorry. Anyways, I mean, all that is just to say, I think that like, you know, we see it more nowadays, but I just, I'm not sure that it's like any more so than in the past but um, but yeah, I mean, I think I I think that at the end of the day, if you're a dude and you are like 20 years old and you are making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars traveling the world and playing a sport, life is pretty good. And it's really easy to kind of, I don't know, be really flippant about a lot of things. Yeah. No, for sure. And, and I think that I think that we definitely see that potentially. Yes, because it's really nice to just like. 
I mean, this is a discussion we've had in the past before about players who, um, on the podcast, about players who, like, kill themselves and make it into the top 10 and completely fall away. Like the Tipsaroviches, um, who else? Gasquet, that one Golbis year. Golbis is getting there. Um, Golbis, Verdasco, yeah. um, of players who, like, were... Even a Vavrinka is a good example, too. And he's, like, a success story of, like, a journey... Not journeyman player, but a top 30 player, if not top 20 player, who has a pretty nice life, you know, traveling the world and whatever, but teams up with a coach or, for whatever reason, decides, you know what, I've only been putting in 70%. I wonder what happens if I put in 100%. Puts in 100%, gets in the top one, top 10, if not top 8, makes Grand Slam finals, Grand Slam semifinals, falls short and then realizes like the next year like you know what that's not worth it it's not worth it it's not worth me being killing myself and being top 10 and not winning a grand slam as opposed to like not killing myself having a pretty nice life and not winning a grand slam regardless of what's happening i'm not winning a grand slam not in this era and i think that's something that has been a pattern that i've I've seen time and time again on the especially on the men's side this is obviously we're going a little over in a tangent but it's a very broad no no, it's fine but it's a broad question but even so we can get into the discussion of like is someone like should someone like sam query who is named in this question be considered a success you know if clearly i'm sure his life is awesome he makes plenty of money certainly more than we do and gets to travel the world and gets to be a pro tennis player even if on some level we all think he's underachieving he's also getting to be a pro tennis player and having a solid life and you know yeah, yeah I, so. I i don't think there's anything wrong with that i mean there is and there isn't obviously this still is a competitive sport so it is part of your job to be competitive like you can't just like be non-competitive and like float around like i think that after some time you start to lose the respect of your peers and of fans and things like that and that's not good but at the same time and this again has been a discussion that we've had i think on this podcast if maybe the insider podcast i can't remember but this is also a job and that and and there are days where you wake up, there are weeks, there are months when you wake up and you freaking hate your job and you don't want to do it anymore. And you mail it in a little bit. And that's not right, but this is what we do. I mean, we've all been there. Anybody who has a job does this. And tennis players are no different. And it's a very human reaction at times to kind of mentally check out when the pressure gets too high, you know? Um and these and at the end of the day it is easy uh, easy to forget they are kids they they are 20 year old kids um maybe not query but i think that when you talk about like the sock and curioses of the world like they're they're young and they will have time and if they are still doing this at 26 27 28 then you know you can talk about okay now it's time to grow up but they're actually acting their age yeah no totally um another question from this one from bill nottingham who asks what goes into and why would a player play both singles and doubles at a high level rather than specializing and uh jack sock was i think mentioned in the previous question we talked about this before but what makes a double specialist uh and i guess courtney i guess i guess you come back from singapore where there's a few i feel like it's a more definitely more recently common wta phenomenon where you have players who are elite at both singles and doubles and i think being an elite singles player i put a for this context put a pretty low bar on that of just being even top 100 um, which yeah. you don't get on the men's side at all. You don't get very many elite doubles players who are full-timers who are top 100 double singles players. Um, you get a handful, but not that many. Many more specialists on the men's side. Um, why would a player do both rather than specializing? And what goes into that uh, decision? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, you have to talk about the money. 
um, you know, it's an extra paycheck that that you get to have. Um, you know, sometimes depending on the size of the tournament, it's marginal, you know, but it's it, it'll pay pay for a flight, you know, a round trip flight. Just go sign in, play one or two matches and boom, get an extra five thousand know, so, dollars a week. Who wouldn't want that at their job? Right. You know, and in the meantime, I mean, obviously for the elite singles players who do play doubles, um, they do so primarily because they 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 use it as practice and they like the repetition. Um, They like to replicate uh, match situations, pressure returns, right? Pressure serves, downbreak point. What do you how do your nerves hold up? And that's something that I think a lot of coaches have um, are always very, uh, very keen on their players doing it. I know that Darren Cahill, for example, he wants Simona Halep to play doubles. All due respect to Simona, she's an absolute hilarious doubles player because she's not good at it at all. But, um, and she knows it, uh, but um, Darren wants her to do it because it's just like, it's more repetition on a serve that they are trying to work out. It's more repetition on returns, you know, those sorts of things. So even if the tactics, the doubles tactics aren't there, you know, you get some some extra reps and 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 it's good. So, I mean, that's that's generally the thing, but also it's just fun to win for a lot of these players. Like, for example, you look at a, a team like Caroline, Caroline Garcia and uh, Christina Mladenovic, two elite singles players um, who probably each of them didn't have as good a singles seasons as they, they, they thought they might, um, as definitely as, as I think that they should. But on the doubles side, they were winning. They win the French Open. That's a huge thing for them as a team, obviously. Get to that Fed Cup final as well. It's a big opportunity for them. And, you know, and they enjoyed it. And they, you know, they had fun. And that's, you know, that's as much a part of, you know, in our last question talking about, you know, this is a job, you know, you make millions of dollars, you fly around the world. Like, you do need it to be fun. And, And to the extent that you get to play doubles with a friend of yours or with, you know, for a week. Eh, why not? No, completely. And I think that there are a lot of players who say they like playing doubles more than practicing. And especially at a, a Grand Slam, for example, uh, the doubles being usually happens if the schedule, if the draw works out the right way and tournament directors make every effort to make it happen this way for as many players as possible. You know, you play your singles one day and your doubles the next day and you kind of alternate so long as you're in both draws. Um, and that can be a really good rhythm for players who don't like the grind of practicing, which can be an absolute grind and get out there in front of a crowd, even if a smaller one. Uh, sometimes it can be fun also for players who are bigger stars to play sometimes on smaller courts um, or just a different environment. Uh, although I'm sure they all like playing on big courts as much as possible. I don't think Serena's ever like, ooh, you know, we're on court 17 today. That's great. Um, <laughs> but that's yeah. also a big thing, too, that I will add as well, just from the business side. I mean, there are elite players who are... You know, you get appearance fees if you agree to play doubles. Yeah, that can be in your contract. That's right. You know, like, you know, we always look at, like, for example, Indian Wells. I mean, I don't, I'm going to say this up front. I have no idea if this is actually happening at Indian Wells because I don't really know what the rule is there. Because I I know at Mandatory and Masters, you're not, you you can't, you don't pay appearance fees. But I think I've heard, I I don't know for sure. I think I've heard certainly, I don't know about Indian Wells in particular, but there are definitely tournaments that have. Yeah, like um, if it's like a 500 or a 250. And it can't even, it can't even be maybe at a a Masters. There can be some sort of clause if you, you know, get some bonus for playing doubles. I don't know if it qualifies. Yeah. Sorry, if it qualifies for doubles. I know like Dubai, I remember Djokovic playing doubles in Dubai or Doha a couple times, I think, which was clearly um, something appearance fee related uh, or something in his contract, you know. Things get baked into contracts all the time. I remember back when Djokovic used to play, we play, I think, Dubai, and his brother got a wild card, too. And I think that was like some yeah. kind of clearly well, in a contract. And so doubles can totally be in there, for sure. Serena and Venus are playing, have said they were going to play doubles together in Auckland. Yeah. So, you know, that's an international level tournament. I'm sure that 
you know, not knowing anything specifically, and I need to just say that I'm not working off of inside information or anything here. WTA but, um, outsider speaking. Exactly. WTA outsider. Well, even insider. I don't know the answer <laughs> to this. Um, but, you know, it would it would be bad business, in my opinion, from the tournament not to offer appearance fee money in that situation and say, hey, we'll, we'll throw in an extra, you know, X amount of money if you guys play doubles together. That would be great because our fans want as many opportunities, as many bites at the apples, uh, Apple to, to see, you know, these two legends play. And so it's, I mean, I think it's great for fans. I wish, you know, we've talked about this before. Like, I wish on the men's side they do it more. I wish on the women's side, like, top 10 players did yeah. it more. No, it's you know, for, it's, it's a lot of, like, outside of top 10 people who play doubles consistently on the women's side. But I would love to see the top teners. Back in the day, I mean, you used to, like, I was telling you offline a few days ago, like, I printed out all the draws uh, the finished draw sheets for 2016 mm-hmm. um, for both singles and doubles. And I was like going through the, the doubles ones and I was just kind of flipping through. And then like, I just happened to like, just decide to go and look at old doubles draw sheets from like, you know, 20 years ago. And yeah, you know, you, you got the Steffies in there and you got the Celluses in there and, and Hingis obviously Hingis. And yeah. Like it, that's Mary cool, Pierce man. Doubles. Yeah. I think that's really good for the product. And I think it's really good for the sport. Yeah. For that and I, and I, I agree. And I think, I'll put in my my one quick plug. It's been too long without mentioning best of three. If you know if, if they did best of three for men at the slams, it would make the doubles fields there so much better. The guy that's what that's part of what facilitates it at Indian Wells is having that you know two week format or ten day format even with days off that allow them to enter doubles and feel comfortable doing that. It would totally happen at slams, especially with all the doubles money available at slams. Um, but in terms of specializing, I think it's something that you know I think more players should try both. For a while, and even we talk about this at the Olympics with Jack Sock, um, whether or not he's a specialist or not. And he said at the U.S. Open that he is um, uh, wanted to scale back on doubles, but then he wound up playing a lot in the fall and won a ton in the fall. I mean, he went on an absolute rampage, uh, winning I think in Beijing and Shanghai and Vienna, I believe. We only have three titles, three different partners, and he doesn't specialize or you know do it enough with the same partner to be in London contention, even though he's one of the best individual doubles players uh, on tour for sure. And so it'd be good to see him doing that more consistently. I'm just like, why not? Your bank account will thank you in your retirement. Your 401k will thank you. Uh, all sorts of different things. And also it's brand. I mean, like yeah. it's more opportunity for you to be on court for fans to see you. More photos of you holding young... trophies. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that there's, there's a lot of it that goes into that. And obviously I understand, like, I guess this idea that there's a stigma, but there shouldn't be, and you can change stigma. You know what I mean? Like this idea of like, oh, I don't want to be considered a double specialist. Like that's so insulting. And I know that some of the, the, the women who play doubles and singles think the same way. Like, no, 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 we're singles players first. It's like, you don't need to like emphasize that like if your doubles ranking is higher than your singles that's okay it's not like um i don't know i think that we need to change the way that we think of and kind of talk about these players who do do both so that you aren't denigrating them for being good at both you know or denigrating them for being better at one than the other i don't know and i I think that's i think that's right i I don't think it's i think people see doubles as being inferior and and there's a repute there's a stigma that all double specialists are failed singles players and that might be there might be some kernel of truth in that most players when they're kids don't dream of being doubles players um and sort of if there was more money in doubles there would be right i mean how much of it is because we think that it's lesser because like it is inherently lesser lesser, or is it lesser because you don't get paid as much so people don't want to do it so everybody obviously wants to be a singles player to me like i think it's it's on tv and yeah i mean yeah i certainly understand why people think it's lesser 
No, I understand. But I'm just saying that, like, is that fair? I guess is my question. No, that I don't it's think considered it lesser, you know? Because I, I just think of it as two different sports. I don't think doubles is, I don't think it's easier to win a doubles title than a singles title. Oh, I mean, it's, obviously draws are one round smaller generally in doubles, but it's not, not easier to be a doubles player per se. No. Different skill set. And I mean, you can say that all the best players are playing singles and maybe that's not the case for doubles sometimes. Certainly on the men's side, it slams. Um, but yeah, I, I think that both are cool and more players should play both and best of three is the way to go. But I, I agree. I would love to see, like you said, more women in particular entering doubles at Grand Slams. More top women. Yeah. Uh, why not? You know, I mean, I, there's so few cases. And if there's something that gets happens where like there's a bunch of rain delays and the schedule gets backed up, you can pull out. That's fine. I have no problem with but someone again, pulling the, out once they, if, they, if the schedule gets, you know, backlogged. But yeah. it's this entire, like, again, this goes back to, like, the very first question and, and the very first thing I was talking about in terms of the pivot from every tournament kind of matters to only slams matter is this idea of, like, okay, well, it's a slam. So I need to, like, this really, really is important. So, like, I can't, you know, I can't goof around. Like, I got to I gotta really focus on my singles. And I can't play doubles. Are you kidding me? Like, that's insane. It's like, why is it insane? It's every other day. Like, you know, like, so you're coming to the, co- you're coming to the courts every day anyway, unless you're Petra Kvitova. So, <laughs> you know, like, you're on site. Just go freaking play a doubles match. Like, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> But, you know, I think that, it, again, it goes back to that. It goes back to this idea that, like, sometimes when you talk to the players, they're like, oh, well, it's a slam. You know, you got to you gotta treat it differently. And, you know, it's when you really got to focus. And it's like, I don't know, maybe you should just, like, not treat it that way and just, like, go have fun and maybe play tennis, better tennis. I don't know. I mean, I know every player is, like, very different. So, but I don't think it should be a blanket thing that sometimes they think, which is that, like, oh, it's a slam. Got to, like, really focus. It's just about you know, singles. I mean, that's, that's, that's just like a really dangerous way to think about it. If that's like the default position of everyone. Next question comes from Malenko Drinich, who asks, how do players rank a hundred plus, 200 plus, 300 plus finance them, themselves structure of their, and what are the, and what is the structure of their contracts with coaches? Various tennis associations help. What do tournaments provide for such players, if anything? And so this obviously is a wide-ranging topic, but I, I just to pull some basic general truths. Players have to get creative a lot of times when they're coming up, when they're even with junior players. It's not cheap. And there have been articles about this a few times. I think there's one about Noah Rubin a couple years ago. It's not cheap getting a kid into tennis. And even and so, and so much of that early sponsorship money that you get can be crucial or you know hugely detrimental if you don't get it um, because there's, there can be a lot of expenses as much as we talk about these players living cushy lives, uh, you know, when they get to the top and being able to be fully broy and going fishing, uh, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of hard work and a lot of failure that means a lot of players who a either never get there, or b takes a long time before they can break even. So there's all sorts of things that players have to do to uh, secure finances. And Courtney, I'm sure you can go through a few of them that you know of. Yeah, no, I mean, like you said, so many of like the very famous instances have been documented. You know, like. Um... Uh, Anna Ivanovich and the the Swiss guy who basically helped finance her career when she was like 14 years old. Um, and she ended up obviously being able to pay him back uh, in spades after she won the French Open. But um, but yeah, you know, that's something that that allowed her to train outside of Serbia to, you know, to travel. A lot of it is the travel expense. And, you know, so many times, you know, a lot of these these players, they, they don't come from 
I mean, obviously, a lot of them do nowadays because the the sport has been opened up to different regions of the world. But, uh, you know, a lot of them come from 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 fairly well off families who can, you know, um, either have the connections to to be able to build up a financial base uh, for their kids um, when they're young. I think federations obviously do help a lot. I mean, you hear it all the time. If you go and listen to our uh, episode 100 with Ernest Golbus, um, you know, he talks about the fact that like, yeah, is he a rich kid? Yes. But the flip side of it of is his dad had to pay for everything. He doesn't come from a federation. He doesn't, he doesn't get LTA support or tennis Australia level of support or tennis Canada, which is a very generous uh, federation or USTA, you know? And so, yeah, Francis. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so it's 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 different. And so every single player has to figure it out themselves as to how it works. Ideally, you know, you get some kind of starter money when you kind of get, you know, your first uh, racket deal or clothing deal. And so those can help. Obviously, signing with an agency um, can also get you some upfront money as well as the agency, like whether it's IMG or CAA or uh, Lagardere, Octagon, whoever, they can kind of like kind of front you money. Um, depending on how those uh, those representation contracts are structured. Like assigning bonuses for things. Right, exactly. Assigning bonus effectively. Um, so there's that. And then obviously once you get that, then ideally now you have people who are out there trying to get you sponsorship agreements to get you more money. Um, so there's obviously that. But yeah. um, And there's also just other ways people get creative. I mean, plenty of players, especially you're talking about ranked 300 plus, plenty of them will do side gigs, getting lessons when they can, whenever they're back home. Uh, Marcus Willis. Marcus Willis, exactly. Marcus Willis gives lessons. He also plays uh, league tennis in Germany and France, which is something that's like a whole another sub world that I barely know anything about. But like the German leagues are constantly going on. I have no idea. You don't hear about them anywhere near as much as, uh, you know, Walton Tennis or. But they go. Or IPTL. Yeah, but they're going and they provide a sort of steady income. People can sort of dip into that well when they need to. And, And people find other sponsors who are just sort of more along the lines of like benefactors. I guess, you know, people who might just front you money just because they have a lot of money and w- like the idea of sponsoring a tennis player. Maybe they're a recreational player themselves. I met some, I met a, I met a woman um, uh, once who was a very wealthy person and talked about this top hundred WTA player who she had like financed for all, through all sorts of things. But she had like, you know, just gotten hooked into her career and invested and was following all the results. And the player would stay in touch with her and tell her about injuries and surgery. And it's just sort of a way to live vicariously that, that she got really into. And, yeah. and that was something that, that she enjoyed and she had the money to do it. And even if it was really crucial money to this player, it was not, you know, much to her. And so that's a good thing. Uh, you can listen to the episode we did. I did with uh, James McGee which I think was in January 2013 or 14, if you scroll back through our archives. Yep. Um, about And he's somebody who had been ranked for a long time and still is, I guess, now in the outside the top 100. And just the things he does for sponsorships and different people he hears from. I and mean, players have gotten creative. There have been a couple of players. I think Julia Glushko had some sort of uh, crowdfunding type site that I don't know if it ever really took off. And a couple other players were on there as well. So people, you know, people try things and, and get creative and, doesn't always work out. It's a, it's a sink or swim sport, and plenty more people sink than swim. And yeah. we don't see, we don't hear the, you don't know those names. We don't hear about them very much. If you, I mean, we hear about, we talked about it. We did the challenge episode last year, and you hear a little bit, not quite from that because it was, we didn't have anybody ranked really low. But uh, you go to a futures, look at the futures draws each week. Those players are not breaking even and not coming close. And it can be a lot of time pressure for them you know, where their family only has so much money 
or, you know, they, or the family and pressure can come from different sides. Sometimes it's the players who feel this immense amount of pressure to provide a return on investment for all the money that their parents spent financing their tennis throughout their whole childhood. So it can be, it can be tough for sure. And that, and that sort of thing uh, is why tennis is not, it's not by any means a reliable get rich quick scheme. And, 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 and and just understanding kind of how the tennis ecosystem, the biosphere kind of operates with all of these, you know, different kind of do it yourself startup style, you know, kind of athletes, um, you understand the pressure that they're under from such a young age, you know, depending on how these financials, uh, financial situations are kind of put together. Um, you know, the people who are putting pressure on them, who, you know, they have people working for them who are on commission and that's the only reason that they work for them. Then you're not winning, then you can't pay them and they get mad and, you know, they know everything about you and they, you know, you get into situations where you're, not blackmail but like you know what i mean like you can understand how things can get dark real fast oh yeah um because of how because of how the financing has to happen and um so that's one thing of just like why yeah it's sometimes it's it's tough and and you do have to kind of um i don't know i feel for the players And, and you see it a lot like when you know at the level that both ben and i report at generally like we're not seeing it because these players have already made it you know at this point their concerns are like, why aren't there? We should get like two more days per diem if we're qualifiers. You know, they're they're arguing about things or and demanding things, which they should be demanding, by the way. I think, um, you know, in terms of like tournaments providing accommodation and yeah. you know basic things like that, particularly to you know qualifying players, yeah. players who you know don't have the money. And it's like why in terms of in terms of tournament accommodations, like a lot of challengers, for example, do put up players and. Yeah, I was and that's where I was going to go with that is just like, you know, there is kind of, you know, there's that that Tennessee Williams quote, right? Like, um, I've always gotten by by on the kindness of strangers from Streetcar Named Desire. Um, But yeah, it's it's a little bit of that when these players are kind of at that lower range, you know, outside of the top 100, barely in the top 100 and kind of floating around in there is you know, host families. And then, and that can be a very, I mean, that's a great story to do is like kind of talking to a bunch of different players about like their best host, you know, um, relationships. Cause a lot of them still have them, yeah. you know, who like they, you know, people, families, kind families who housed them when they were like playing a local challenger when they were ranked outside the top 250 and now they're in the top 50 and they still stay with that family. And they'll, like, and, and not know. only that, and sometimes they'll bring that family in like yeah. extreme case. It's like the, sit in their box at a grand slam. You know, th- those sort of there can be examples of loyalty from players for sure who re- who pay back in one way or another, not always literally like that, but the people who helped them when they were on their way. For up. Sure. So that can be a very positive story. And that stuff does come up in the challenger episode we did last year. Yeah. From Char- Charlottesville. So there's a lot there's a lot of that. But it but this goes again towards like my my uh, um, assertion earlier that that tennis is still as a as a professional sport kind of in its infancy in a lot of ways, like there's got to be a better way than this. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's having to having these kids and these families just like leverage their lives, you know, to try and, and get their kid, you know, that once in a lifetime shot to be a professional tennis player. It's, I don't know, those stories, like when I hear them just like really break my heart, you know, and it's just not necessarily something that you see in a lot of other professional sports where, you know, there are systems in place, you know, and obviously if you come from a big country that has a very active tennis federation, that helps because 
there is a system in place and you can kind of put your kid through USTA or LTA or, uh, you know, uh, the FFT, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, for a lot of those smaller countries where a lot of our top players are coming from, that those, 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 um, foundations don't exist. And, and, you know, it, it can be, it can be questionable what happens, uh, in terms of how players and families have to get that money together. Uh, last sort of question. We got two similar questions. We're going to, uh, combine into one, give a little more time to, uh, first question comes from Jill who says, I'm intrigued by commenta- commentator biases and how slash why it might perfect a player's performance. Uh, for example, should Darren Cahill step down because he's a coach now? Um, I hope not because I like him, but I'd like to hear your detailed analysis of the situation. And then Jonathan Holtz asks about the business side of tennis and conflicts of interest. Uh, he's named Justin Gimmelstab there and the history of conflict of interest uh, naming Donald Dell. Uh, who's sort of the poster child for it from the early days. And that's what it goes, it goes to. I think this question goes to what you said before, uh, tennis being a young sport. I mean, you don't see this happening, for example, in, you know, NBA. You don't see someone who's the general manager of a of an NBA team, you know, also being a color commentator on ESPN. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Uh, and tennis being a small mom-pop pop business sometimes in its origins and, and how the game got created uh and how the you know there was a bit of a free-for-all when the open era started and money started to flow into the sport people got more than one spot the table and and like jill says a lot of times these people who have you know clear conflicts um darren cahill makes a very clear concerted effort to not commentate now on any women's matches so he does try to mitigate it but he still some people would say even that's you know more of a crossover than happened in other sports um, and he's a great commentator and by all accounts, a, a great coach um, and has a history of that. So the sort we losing something in some ways by having him out of one of those roles. Um, but yeah, it, it's a it's a tricky thing for sure. And I, I don't know if you think that there could there should be any sort of <laughs> I'm tempted to use drain the swamp in this analogy. Oh, God, but, sir. But, <laughs> but I'm just going to acknowledge You're it. Not worst. that it's a useful phrase at all just because it's clearly not happening in in the current administration or the incoming administration rather but does should there be major reform there should be i think i think that again you know when you're talking about um when you look at examples of what are you know the the elite worldwide sports these sorts of conflicts don't exist um, now there's a var- variety of reasons why they do within tennis and Ben, you know, obviously, um, cited quite a few of them. A lot of it's the history of the sport, um, you know, and just how tennis was founded, how it began, how the ATP, the, the WTA, the ITF, and, you know, all the different alphabet soups, uh, are involved and, and who sits on whose boards and, you know, can any of the, you know, the, the independent, um, uh, organizations actually act independently of the other should they there's i mean these are and and also discussions ha- that are constant and also how many and people don't i think i don't i don't even i even i don't always understand the full scope of this or don't always appreciate the full scope how much the agencies behind tennis who we mostly right. think of through player representation lenses the IMG, Octagon, Lagardere also have huge management stakes in tournaments and things like that and rights deals i know like IMG has or had some huge stake in Wimbledon and running running their sort of uh, output and I think in their broadcast deals, I believe. And things like that can go, uh, can be a huge impact and it's just all sorts of things being under shared umbrellas in a way you don't see 
other places. And it, and it can certainly be a problem. And this is something we I talked about. And these are obviously mentioned a lot of past episodes, but these are sort of all over the place questions we have touched on at some points before. And the sort of starkest example, I talked with Michael Mushaw in our sort of dark side of tennis right. episode <laughs> we put out last fall, I think September, October of 2015, about how when he was someone who was reporting on the sport more in the early 80s, when I think a lot of these things were much more uh, obvious and not swept under the rug or just were sticking out so far from the rug because they were so huge, you know, where you'd have a situation like Donald Dell who Jonathan mentioned in his question, who would be, uh, you know, would own a tournament, would be commentating on TV, and would also be the agent for both players playing at the same time. And it's just like, from a... <laughs> the And it's an interesting question that we can get into, I guess, here, because I think it fits in. Do you consider, Courtney, um, color commentators and people, whether they're on studio desks or in the booth, do you consider them journalists? And should they be held to that sort of standard? Or is it a different thing no, where they should not be held to that standard? No, 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 no. Okay. I think that if you're, I think if you're doing, if you work for a broadcast network, to me, you are an entertainer and you hmm. are part of, because your idea, your, your goal is not news. Your goal is to create a product that is the most entertaining thing that it could possibly be. That goes with the packaging of it. That goes with whatever. So, if your job is so to if to if to do that, you have to manufacture a controversy that doesn't exist, but oh, it made everything super super interesting. Then that's what you do. And I don't even really begrudge, you know, an ESPN or Eurosport or Sky Sports or any of the the major tennis broadcasters when they do that. I'm like, I get it. You know, you're trying to make the most interesting product that you can possibly do. That's two different things. And that's like a very different um, goal than what a, a proper journalist has, which is to report um, and and to report news and to be fair and to be unbiased. Now, ideally within that, in order to create something that is entertaining, that people want to tune into, it is important for you to put up people who are, who are commentating who... I think people at home respect. Now, if that person is biased or not, like, I don't know if that it just depends on whether or not at the end of the day, the person sitting at home cares about that bias or not. Right. And whether or not you make it public. Now, I think that tennis can do a much better job of making the conflicts that it has absolutely and abundantly clear. So I think that like what Darren does at ESPN, I think is is as clean as you can get outside of just like he can't work at ESPN anymore, which is that like, look, he coaches a top women's player. He does not therefore come in and opine on women's tennis. He doesn't give his read on, you know, other players. He does not stand up there and give a critique of like the player that Simona Halep is playing and then not say a damn thing about Simona. Um, some others do that. Patrick Moore, you know I mean, you can just say the name. Just say the name. We know some other some other coaches do it. I uh -huh. don't think that that's appropriate. I'm yeah. sorry, I just don't. I think that that's really unfair to the players. I think that that's unfair to 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 the viewers at home. Like, what exactly are you doing? Like, if you're up there, then at least act unbiased and give the 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 story for both players. Tell people how to beat Serena. But if you're not up there to do that and you can't do that, then you shouldn't be saying, and this is what Serena needs to do to beat this player. I, I, I just have an issue with that. I don't think that's particularly fair. So there's that. I think that generally speaking, yes, I think that, that first and foremost, tennis needs to be better about putting the, the, the conflicts up front. Um, and you just want to make sure that the person that you're listening to 
is coming at it from a as pure place as possible. I mean, it's even, I mean, this year on this podcast, it's been an issue that Ben and I have had to, na- or at least I've had to navigate throughout the year of mm-hmm. like, when can Courtney opine on an issue and when can she not? And when I know that like, I either A, can't say what I think, or B, no one will believe that what I say <laughs> is what I think. Um, because they'll think that I'm conflicted, then I generally try to remain silent. I, I stay off of those episodes and I stay off of those those discussions. But, you know, I think that at least for somebody who go, comes up against and is like arguably in conflict in multiple different roles, um, that's how I navigate it. Is that if so long as I feel like what I'm saying is like it is me saying what I want to say, then it's fine. But if I feel like, oh, I'm only saying this because I work at the WTA, then that's a problem. Yeah, no, and I think that what you've done, I can speak from an NCR perspective, you know, I think hopefully listeners appreciate what you've done, even if they obviously miss you, because everyone likes you more than me, let's be honest, <laughs> oh on God, the episodes stop. that you're not here for. Um, I think hope people understand why uh, we've made those choices, and you particularly made those choices, and uh, that it doesn't lead to awkward situations. And I think people certainly should respect uh, what Darren Cahill, not that Darren Cahill was doing a ton of women's tennis before he took the job with Simona, on ESPN, he was mostly doing men's, but I think the clear delineation he made um, that's hopefully pretty transparent out there, I hope people appreciate that and hopefully can be a role model for for things. I mean, like uh, Jonathan Holtz mentioned Gimmelstab, and yeah, Gimmelstab has been in this generation, I think, the most sort of obvious uh, offender, if you want to call it that, on this one. He's been, you know, coaching uh, John Isner, actively on the payroll of John Isner, and has is sometimes got put on Isner matches. When he's not at the same tournament as him, when he's calling from the studio and does Davis Cup the Isner's in or something like that. The and funny just thing the, is, though, the bizarre listening experience, at least for me, being in the know about that role, I don't know. He can't provide insight for sure. I mean, he's, he's very good at reading like Isner's body language and his tactics, and there is some unique insight there for sure that you get that you wouldn't get from someone who's not <laughs> inside the camp. But I, I think that overall, I don't know. It's just it's just uncomfortable for me in knowing, especially when Isner like starts losing or playing terrible. Yeah, I mean, I the funny thing about it is that like I have of all the things that you know the different hats uh, that Justin wears, like the whole him wearing the commentator and Isner coach hat is like weirdly the least offensive to me. That's fair. <laughs> like, like I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever. Like you know, because like what's you know, kind not who cares, but kind of like okay, like so he's you know right because you yeah. know he's his coach. He's not going to be generally hypercritical of john and he's going to give you some insight into what in terms of what he can do and that's about it and a lot of other americans in general too he's always been you know noticeably pretty pro-american when he's doing a right a harrison match or obviously that famous mr cranky pants moment with mary carillo at the u.s open several (laughs) years ago which was iconic um or you know query or sock he's, he's how is there not a clip guys. of that by the way there is it's on youtube it's on youtube the mr cranky pants is on youtube i'll put it in this episode if it is <laughs> okay. i'm pretty sure it is yeah so we'll be getting back to the match between marin chillich and mr cranky pants ryan harrison <laughs> he's just acting like a brat out there you don't think so you can defend what he's doing He's competing hard. It means a, it means a lot to him. It means a lot to a lot of people. It's inherent. It's inherently tied to why he's going to be an excellent player. You don't think anything he's done is worthy of a warning? It's not my job. I'm asking you. My job is to talk about the tennis between the lines. When I get paid to be the chair umpire, I'll determine that. But yeah, I mean, I think that th- those those situations were far more problematic to me because those are situations where he's providing an opinion, and even if it is his actual opinion. 
he's too conflicted to where you don't know where this opinion is coming from because like he's whether it's because he's good friends with them or he's trying to get into representation situations yeah. with them or whether it's because he has an exhibition event and he wants to try and get in good with these players so that they will yeah. come play his exhibition charity things you know what i mean like those are far more insidious to me not because like they're insidious per se like but because the public doesn't know Pam Shriver discussed that when she was on the show with us. Yeah, exactly. So long as people know, so long as you tell me straight up, this is why even the Patrick thing, like, I, it can bother me as much as it want, I want, but it's out there. We all know, like, what's going on, right? Like, it's not like when he's out there breaking down a Serena match that we forget that he's also Serena's coach. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so, so to me, the hats that are problematic and the conflicts that are problematic are ones where the conflicts are kept under wraps mm -hmm. or aren't public knowledge. And that's where I have an issue with it. No, I think that's right. And I think that you mentioned exhibitions. That's a really good point. And that goes into some of the different uh, conflicts that we've had, for example, with Mary Jo Fernandez. Um, it doesn't get talked about that much considering all of hers. Uh, just because I think that she's, uh, you know, I think she does a pretty good job of not ever really displaying bias in a way that people can hang anything on her for. Um, even though she has been, you know, obviously uh, Fed Cup captain, even though she just stepped down from that. Uh, and also, uh, with her being the hus the wife of Tony Godzik, who is Federer's agent and a couple other players' agents now too. And, you know, you can see that. And then being an ESPN commentator. Yeah. So how does, yeah. you know, you and, can see how all yeah, those pieces so, fly together. And so I think what Pam Shriver mentioned when she was on the show was that after she used to do a, a charity exhibition in Baltimore annually. And I think after she stopped doing it, she felt herself being much freer about what she could say about players. Because she wasn't worried about having them about saying something that got back to them that made them not want to show up to her exhibition. And those are, I think, the sort of things right that I think you're right, Corey. Those are more insidious. If it's someone like Moritoglu, who's, you know, on there saying, I'm, you know, Patrick Moritoglu, coach of Serena Williams, best player ever, and thus here is my authority to tell you about these things. That's much more upfront. It's it's much more uh, you know, shameless, you could say, or, or just, you know, obvious. Uh, what he's doing there. If someone is being gentle in a critique of, uh, let's say, I don't know that she has, but let's say Mary Jo is doing a is calling a Sloane Stevens match, and had wanted to make sure that Sloane stayed in, a, you know, on her good side, so she get her for Fed Cup later on. Um, that can be a more sort of problematic situation for sure. If that's not something obvious to the viewer, um, but then, but then I guess it goes back to. Uh, the original question I had for you about entertainer versus journalist. And is it, you know, who's dis, if they're not, if they're entertainers, who's disserved then by them being uh, biased, you know? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, it's, it's definitely true. And, you know, I think that again, so much of this is kind of the small potatoes conflicts, right? Like when you start talking about commentator conflicts, I mean, what exactly is the harm? That's, that's, I think it's a fair question. Okay, somebody, Donald Dell, let's look back at the Donald Dell situation, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like the epitome of peak conflict of interest. What's the harm? He's promote. He's on TV, he's promoting his tournament, he's promoting his players, he's giving you insight. Like what, right? You know what I mean? Like, again, to me, the conflicts that matter are the ones that are not related to com commentators. Like, that's just entertainment, and it just is what it is. I think that the problems, you know, are, are generally more like, yeah, like tournament ownership and 
uh, who owns what and who sits on whose board and who knows who and who's in the pocket of whom. And, and even if like, like a player the, gets a better court placement because they have the right agency or something. Right, yeah. right. Or, or, or you know, tournament A is owned by agency B and player D, get who is represented by that agency, gets a wild card ahead of like 20 other players. You know, obviously every right to do it. But, you know, those are those are going to be more problematic. Those are going to bother me way more than a commentator being biased in one way or another. Like in those situations, I'm a little bit more who cares. I think to your previous answer, I think I would disagree that commentators, I think there is, it's an interesting role, but I think there is definitely a layer of journalism that goes into it. There when, should when, be. When, there should be. But I don't think, I think there but is. But I think there inherently is. I mean, whether or not they're failing at it or not, I think it's there as, re- as some somewhat requirement to be a more or less objective reporter of what you're seeing on the screen. I mean, because these are essentially, you know, live news analysts. I remember there being criticism or second guessing or whatever of, for example, when Serena had her match at Wimbledon, where she's you know, the doubles match after she lost to Cornet, where, you know, she looked, you know, faint or right. loopy or whatever on court. And the commentators had to be out there breaking that down as, to the best of their abilities live. And it can be a strange situation or, you know, something can happen like the, you know, Serena getting foot faulted or Djokovic throwing his racket near a ball kit or whatever happens. Um, they have to, they should be in a situation where the viewer can trust them to well, be, you know, to be giving it to them more or less straight. And I think that I think some layer of that is important. It's a, it's a certainly it's a goal. Agree. If, if tennis is falling well short of it, then tennis should get a failing grade on that. But I think it should remain something of a goal. And that's but, why I do appreciate people like shriver and like carrillo who are notably conflict free in this uh game most definitely i do think though that because of the inherent conflicts that do exist whether or not and again conflicts you know we can use it as a very specific um uh, almost legal type term of like you represent you have two roles that directly conflict but you know, those biases also exist with respect to like who your friend, which players and coaches you're friends with and who you're tight with. And so therefore are you more inclined to be friendly about the way that you speak about them versus somebody else. So it there are definitely gradations. I do think, though, that within tennis, going to your point about being a live news, you know, uh, analysis mm-hmm. thing. One thing that I do kind of trust generally with tennis, although now that I say this, I I'm remembering concrete <laughs> instances where this this definitely didn't happen. But because of the conflicts, I do think that generally there's less hot taking um, within tennis broadcast than there is in tennis writing and Twitter and online and like whatever. Like I feel like because they're kind of handcuffed in a lot of ways with like not wanting to piss off certain players and not wanting, you know, this, this and that, that they are pretty tempered with their reaction when controversial things happen so long as John McEnroe is not on the mic. Yeah, I was going to say it's like the McEnroe Monkeys <laughs> thing. Yeah, when, that, when that doesn't count. It's being very yeah. hot takey. Yeah, no, right. I think but I think that's true but then it but then it also comes if it's being uh, you know, it can be uneven, which I think is also bad. I remember like for example, I think earlier in his commentary days, Gimbal stopped being much more critical of, you know, like Spanish players or something than he ever would be with Americans. And it's not like, you know, right. people who are people who are the Feliciano Lopez right. moments. Yeah. I remember that him being like weirdly anti Lopez and them, you know, I don't think the people are declawed or whatever um, are, you know, 
that happens to them across the board. And so that can be ideal. I mean, I think to go back to the previous point, I think it is the origin. I think tenants could definitely strive to be better. I think that, and I think a lot of people in these roles could be, you know, forced to, to choose. I think I wouldn't have a problem or I would, I would applaud even if it wouldn't help these people's bottom lines and they wouldn't appreciate me saying this. But if, if ESPN made a rule saying, Hey, commentators, you have to either decide to work for us or to work for say USTA on a level. And you can't do one with the other if you're working at say the US Open because you have to be in a position where you're free to completely, you know, if the roof malfunctions or, you know, some scheduling thing happens or some bad call gets made or whatever, you shouldn't feel there should be no doubt whatsoever that you're giving it to the viewers as straight as possible. And as much as, you know, I, I think that would be a, a laudable sort of requirement to make. Absol- in terms of how absolutely to laudable. Absolutely yeah. laudable. But again, this goes back to another point of like, there ain't that much money in tennis. Oh, I know. Exactly. Yeah. So in, exclusivity is something you pay for, yeah. right? We know this as freelancers. We know this as, as, right? Like even with the WTA, like I am, I could have freelanced with them. I work for them 100%. I am their employee. They pay accordingly, right? Like, but when you were back in the Sports Illustrated days, I wasn't paid that much. Therefore, SI could not really come at me and say, you can only write for us. You can't write for anybody else. Yeah. Well, okay, then pay me for that exclusivity, right? Yeah. You can't just like ask for it. Like, yes, ideally, you're absolutely right. That is the situation, but you're not compensating me accordingly. And it is the same situation within tennis. The reason why these conflicts happen, I don't think that people want to be in conflict, but I think the problem is that there's a dearth of perceived talent within these certain roles, right? Like whether it's agents or uh, broadcasts or whatever it is, right? They, they That the pool of people that people who are doing hiring think are good is very small. So those those singular five people or 10 people, 15, 20 people get all asked to do 20 different jobs. Yeah. But not a single one of those jobs is enough to sustain like that person doesn't pay enough. That's true. And even, and even, so they have and to even, take five jobs. And even when it does pay a good amount, people always want more. And whether you want to call that greed or just, you know, being a capitalist, honestly, you know, I mean, there's plenty of people, you know, someone like uh, Katrina Adams, who's, I think, serves as head of USTA, but also has other gigs, you know, occasionally working as a commentator and working and working with ITF and things like that. Um, and she's, I'm sure, making plenty of money at her USDA job that would, you know, put food on the table. But why not take more work if it's there available to you? And that's right. her right, so long as nobody wants to stop her. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, no, and, and it's... A, it it's, it's Yeah, and it's one of those things, too, where... I do think, again, so much of it is about putting it all out there and being very honest about it. Like, I know that for myself, for example, I'm an employee of the WTA. I write for the WTA. At the end of the day, my job is to, as much as it is to be a reporter for the WTA, it is to 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 champion the WTA in a lot of ways, right? Like, that's the overarching goal, even if at times I'm being critical. It is within the larger, broader goal of trying to elevate, you know, the the product. Now, when that being said, I get asked to do radio, you know, commentary. I do radio for the French Open. Um, I've done hits for Wimbledon. I'm occasionally asked by BBC to do mm-hmm. commentary for them during matches, both men's and women's. Um, yeah, like whatever. Like, and in those situations where I am asked to do that, I'm always very upfront, and I'm like, okay, you do know and understand though that I am like it's important for me that you can understand and people who listen understand that I work for the WTA. 
Like, do not come at me and claim that you think that, like, I'm some sort of independent. I'm as independent as I can be. But at the end of the day, let's not pretend that I don't get a paycheck from the tour. So, you know, I think that the being upfront is what is, like, really important. Um, That's, like, the first hurdle to jump. And if everybody would just be upfront with their conflicts, then I think that tennis would be, like, way ahead of the curve and then we can deal with actually unwinding the actual conflicts to where like people aren't actually conflicted anymore <laughs> there we go and with that we I think we've un- unwound this pretty well we got through a good number of questions this was good these I questions so. are good yeah. yeah yeah tremendous we'll do so it again we'll do it we again for sure we'll have more questions coming in like we said before if you are somebody who got a question as your kickstarter reward um Please send it to us uh, when you have a chance. We'd like to get hopefully another one done maybe in December still while the offseason is still going. It's a good time to do these. And in the meantime, thank you very much for following along with us uh, when we're not doing questions or other things by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow along with us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can send us emails with questions. Even if you're not a Kickstarter backer, um, send us questions as well. Uh, we always appreciate those or comments, anything on the show. Uh, to our email, no challenge remaining at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app of your choice to get the stuff. Uh, the episode is delivered to you automatically there to get the stuff. It's a good way to phrase our show. Just get the, <laughs> to get the stuff. To um, get the stuff. People who've gotten all sorts of stuff are executive producers of no challenge remaining, Pancha Resendis of tennisballs.com, and Tao Woolley. Uh, Courtney, do you have rant thoughts, rave thoughts, feelings, sure. emotions? Oh, so many. Go for so it. So many. Um, it's the off season. It's also post um, Trump being elected and everything that is on TV and Twitter being terrible. So I just I've like been... don't watch TV anymore. I'll just well, say this that. Is exactly. Like, so I've been retreating a little bit um, away from I'm trying not to be on Twitter all the time. I'm trying to definitely not watch uh, television news uh, at all. I've kind of curtailed some podcast listening and and insofar as i've been doing that um i've been reading a lot more which is good because when you're reading actual books physical books you cannot have the tv on and be reading twitter either like it's like in your own way kind of your own cave in order to read so so the book thing has been going well highly recommend that if you guys are looking for ways to cope with uh the 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 deafening thunderstorm of idiocy that is coming from uh Trump Tower. But um, outside of that, I've also been trying to catch up on TV. And um, and so, yeah, so I finally watched the third season of The Fall and it was tremendous. And I would, first of all, highly recommend anybody who is looking for a new series to watch it. Three seasons, um, six episodes per season. Um, it's a BBC show starring Gillian Anderson and Jamie Dornan. Takes place in Ireland. Um, Gillian Anderson has a British accent at times. Sometimes it doesn't sound British, but <laughs> but she was born in London, so it's not like she doesn't have the capacity to do it. But it's a weird. Is she accent. American? I thought she was just. Isn't she just British? Mm, or is she American? I think she's American, but she was like she's like grew, but she grew up in London for a while, or like moved okay. there or something. But like she grew up in like out somewhere outside of Michigan. I. Th- think i want to say but anyways um but she's tremendous but basically it's a crime show jamie dornan plays a serial killer uh jillian anderson plays a detective and it's a bit whole cat and mouse thing it's pretty gruesome and pretty like tense and psychologically thrillery type of thing but what i wanted to rave about aside and apart from the show and encouraging people to watch it is that 
one thing that I've really, really loved about the show throughout the three seasons was something that, okay, we talk a lot about the need for diversity within whatever, you know, industry we're in, right? Like that Mm -hmm. the more women that are in there, persons of color, LGBT, like whatever, like different points of views matter. Why? Because if you have different points of views, then no singular point of view becomes normal and the dominant viewpoint and it becomes a, you know, discourse. You can call each other out on things and you can educate each other and you can, I don't know, you know. Things are less insular. Yes, it's John Stuart Mill. Discourse is good. Debate is good. And then once we discuss all these ideas we can you know kind of reach a level of enlightenment um but anyways i think that jillian anderson in the fall her character of stella gibson who's like this badass (laughs) she's awesome but um but her character and the way that she plays her character is a really good example of that like obviously she's in law enforcement she plays kind of a boss type she's pretty high up and so she is kind of navigating that and it's really, there are moments where you're just like, wow, that scene was so great just because it was a woman standing up for women in a very, like, strong way, like, pointing out the woman's point of view. So, like, there's one scene in the third uh, season where, like, um, a woman has a miscarriage. And, but she's also, that woman is also being investigated by the police for obstruction of justice um, charges. And Jillian Anderson's like, basically like, um, I'm pretty sure we can just drop these. Like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. She didn't know. She wasn't intentionally trying to, uh, you know, to, to obstruct justice. Like she was in, you know, she was being fooled as well, et cetera, et cetera. And so the two cops are like, no, like she needs to we need to teach her a lesson and da 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 da. And they're like being really hardcore about it. And like Jillian Anderson just kind of looks at them and just is like, she just had a miscarriage. It is like the single most like devastating thing that can happen to a woman like that, who like takes such great pride in her role as a mother and as a caretaker, like she's suffered enough, like we should back off. And the guys are still like, no, she needs to learn a lesson. So we're going to prosecute her. And Jillian Anderson just like looks at them. But like, again, it's one of those situations where like, that's the different, you know, like one of those moments where, okay, did it matter? No. But like, it's one of those moments where you look at it and you're like, oh, like that's a concrete example of why it's important to have like different voices in a room. Yeah, no. And that's, that's very, the one, the show that reminds me of that, that I've seen the most that made me think along those lines while you're talking is Homeland. Yes. Just seeing Homeland having, and obviously Carrie Matheson is a very flawed character (laughs) in all sorts of ways. And it's a mess at a lot of different times, but just seeing, you know, uh, having your entry into this world of, you know, globalist, you know, global, global Islamic terrorism or whatever, you know, other elements of it come in at different times. Um, And, you know, Iraq war, things like that, having it be a woman, is just as a different, lends to it a different sort of perspective and a different level of empathy or sympathy and and lack thereof or things and it can just be it's interesting having her there and that's a show that i think yeah similar ways not that she's very empathetic i can't imagine her you know saying like no 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 she's been through enough that's not the carrie madison way at all no it's although not. your um your uh discussion of that made me realize that we never did our ncr breakdown of serial season two which i feel like we owe people oh my gosh time. okay yeah we'll do that um, not right now but like eventually yeah we'll but, do that but yeah no um, i mean it's true and i think that one thing that the fall does really really well is that in those moments it's really it's really smart because it does kind of like lull you in even though Stella Gibson's this great character it does lull you in into like you'll fi- catch find yourself falling into these traditional traps of how you view 
like law enforcement or investigations and whatever. And it is a very hetero, very male, uh, like go get, you know, very cowboy type thing. Um, and like, and then right when that happens, like Stella Gibson would like do some like monologue where that like snaps you completely out of it. You're like, Oh my God. Like I totally, you know, um, like fell for this trap. Like, you know, like, like all the guys think that she's obsessed with this serial killer because she has some sort of affinity for him or like something. And like, and you kind of find yourself falling into that same trap of wondering the same thing. And then she gives this monologue and you're like, oh shit, no. Yep. Okay. My bad. You know? And it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's just, it's really smart. And she does it a bunch of different ways. Like guys come on to her. She rebuffs them really well. They'll like try and like come on to her friends and she's just real smart about all of it. And it's just great. It's a great, I think it's just one of the best like feminist shows that I've seen um, for a while. Um, so it's 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 really good. So people should watch yeah, it. Check it out. I certainly need more postcarding watches. Yes. Um, uh, so yeah. So that's that sounds all wonderful. Mine is gonna be brief. I was over um, a couple different times. It was a very exciting weekend for me. I, I got to build IKEA furniture for not one but two different friends. Oh my goodness! Over the weekend, so I was just a you know uh, whatever happy. You know, happy as a clam, or you know, whatever analogy. I was a sh- thing you were happy doing you were, as they say in Sweden, a schmirgishharfen. Exactly, <laughs> one of those. And so it was great. And the second the one I did today, Sunday, um, we had Christmas music playing, and it's interesting to me. And I've I read an article about this, I think, before, but how much of Christmas music is so old, and how all of it is just about nostalgia. And like I remember, it's like even like there was this version of um, "All I Want for Christmas Is You" that I first you know, the intro was not exactly the same as Mariah, and then you know you get excited because it's the big iconic Christmas song, and then the vocals start and you realize slowly that's not actually Mariah. And then I looked at the you know phone, my friend's phone was playing, and it was actually she had it on Pandora or something, and it turned out to be like the Glee version, which is just hugely offensive. Um, but so offensive it's, it is, but also it's interesting like why. I just think it's an interesting sort of thought exercise, if nothing else, like why there is never any new Christmas music that breaks through. Why like people in 2016 are still listening to like rocking around the Christmas tree regularly and why there hasn't been like a generational, you know, keeping up with these. And it's just interesting that it clearly people have decided or radio stations have decided and for the purposes of selling things that all you're really selling with Christmas music as a very commercial sort of form of music is nostalgia, which makes people, you know, think about, home and holidays and traditions and wanting to buy things to make them happy in those sort of settings. So I don't know. It's, it's wonder, it's interesting wondering if anything will ever break through that. And then, which will be the outro, um, and play for me. We're talking about how no Christmas songs ever become, uh, uniquely, you know, new Christmas songs ever break through and gain a hook. But then she played me Justin Bieber's version of little drummer boy, Ew. which is so that is the exact right reaction. First of all, as you obviously couldn't go wrong there and just what he does with it is uh remarkably remarkably terrible it shows you why people don't try no but there are great but if you but the thing is the rewards are great if you do try i mean like for example i'm currently looking at a blog post called 15 pop stars you forgot recorded an original christmas song and number one one of the best of all time britney spears my only wish this year great christmas song i don't remember that song at all oh my god ben get on it I will. Uh, let's see here. Destiny's Child, Eight Days of Christmas. I know that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one I know well. 
Oh, I make it feel so. That, that's actually been when we did our uh, gift thing. Mm. There's like a sample. We've used this on Instagram. We've used Eight Days of Christmas. There you go. Um, there's <laughs> Danity Kane, Home for Christmas. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, there, there have been a few, like, NSYNC has Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Which I love. It's a wonderful yeah, it's, feeling. It's, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. feeling. That's the same song. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Is that, uh, yeah, yeah. There's oh, also, yeah, I, I, wasn't Christmas I, yeah. in Hollis one? Run DMC? Mm-hmm. I've never heard that, but <gasps> sure. it sounds good. Christmas in Hollis is bomb. No, but I, I do like some of the new ones. Like, I like even, like, not that new, like, 80s. I love the uh, Waitresses Christmas wrapping, you know. Sure. Which is, and uh, people obviously talk about, um, what's it called? Uh, you know, that the one that wins all the contests every year. That's, like, the not the Pokes. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Pokes song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, New York. So this is no. Uh, holy crap! Why can't go I? Away back, and the bells are ringing uh, on Christmas uh, Day. Uh, yeah. The Pogues. Oh my gosh! How do I not remember this? Let me look it up. I'm doing it right now. Fairy tale Christmas. Yeah. No, that's not right. Fairy tales. Right? Of, fairy tales of New York. Fairy tale of New York. Yes. Fairy tale yeah. of New York. Okay. There you go. Yeah, so that, that one. I mean, but I'm just saying, it's the bar is set so high. I'm wondering if, like, in 50 years, people will still be listening to like music from the 1950s for Christmas. I think you're right, though. Probably I mean, possible. I think that the, the it's just it's just the feeling of Christmas. Christmas is supposed to be like you know that two or three weeks of just like the comforts of home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so you know, nostalgia definitely goes into that. Well, I just hope that in 50 years, people will be nostalgic. For this amazing Bieber rap verse you're about to hear, please, get so excited, you guys! Please don't close so with excited. this. Please don't close. I, I, with I have it. to. It's gonna happen. You guys, people have, have their warning. You can stop now if you want. People, five, four, three, two, stop. One. Bieber. <laughs> Oh, my boy, so dope, dope.